This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast, here with another episode in our new series, The Case I Can't Forget. Today, I am just delighted to be joined by my boss, Dr. Rich Byrne, Chair of Neurosurgery here at Rush, who has been gracious enough with his time to sit down and share a story that he recalls from early in his career. Uh, Dr. Byrne's been on the show before. You all may remember from our first season talking about how he finds time in his day for all of his myriad activities, uh, most strenuous but some enjoyable. Dr. Byrne, welcome back to the show. Thanks for the invitation. I'm glad to join you and share just one case. And I mean, obviously, at this point in my career, almost 25 years in, many thousands of cases. and if you ask me to say, well, can you, can you think of one case to talk about? And the answer is, well, that's damn near impossible because there are so many cases that you'll never forget and so many patients you'll never forget. And uh, unfortunately for neurosurgeons, it's been said that neurosurgeons carry around their own personal uh, graveyard because they, they think of the, the cases that didn't go well and they, they quickly forget the ones that did go well, and, and that, of course, is the vast majority of them, but they'll always remember the ones that didn't go quite so well. Uh, and that, that gives you a, a sort of a skewed view of life if you think of it that, in those terms. But it is something that we all struggle with because we're in a critical care field. Right. I think all doctors, all surgeons, critical care surgeons, cardiac surgeons, transplant surgeons, Cardiologists, uh, critical care doctors, always have that bias towards you know, worrying about what didn't go right. And that's what makes us better. But it's also something that can distort your view and it can also limit your career if you aren't careful about the way you think about things. So with that uh, being said, uh, the many thousands of cases and thousands of brain tumors I've done, I, I, think, I think about uh, many, but one I'm going to talk about today is because it happened early in my career. Mm. And I learned some, I think, important lessons about not technical matters of neurosurgery, but just how do you manage yourself if something doesn't go right. Uh, So in thinking about it, this is, uh, I'd say, one of my, my early most challenging cases in my career. And it was, a, it was a fellow who was sent up by his internist uh, because he had a bump on his head. No mm-hmm. imaging, but had a bump on his head, and he was bald. Okay. Good-looking man, uh, power lifter, athlete, right. very successful businessman, beloved in his community, big family. Bump and, on his head. And was he sent to your clinic, or was this a transfer? Literally came up to make an appointment with me. I happened to run into him in the... In, in the uh, the lobby <laughs> he says I'm supposed to meet you and I got this bump on my head and I said well do you have any imaging and the answer is no and of course you're hoping it's a lipoma or something and it's right around the right around the vertex um, so he gets the imaging and lo and behold he's got a massive uh, midline parasagittal meningioma mm. with significant brain compression it was probably about six centimeters, really, really denting the brain. Uh, And, you know, he had a bump on his head. (laughs) And that was his complaint. 
uh, when I asked him a little more carefully about, you know, well, what sort of symptoms do you have? He said, well, I'm a power lifter and I just can't squat like I used to. I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe we're getting somewhere. And you look at his legs versus his arms and you realize, okay, well, maybe, maybe there's something to that. And when you look at it and you, you see how his, his midline motor sensory areas are just smashed, it's right. got to be real. So I um, told him what I thought ought to happen, uh, how I would do it, uh, suggested he get some more opinions. I thought about maybe having one of my senior colleagues see him, uh, but he, he knew my old wrestling coach. Ah. Uh, and it, I was a decent wrestler in high school, and he, sure. he knew, and he checked on me with my wrestling coach, so he figured, <laughs> well, if he thinks you're okay, you got to be okay. One athlete to another, you had a yeah. referral. Yeah, I was like, okay. Of course, my old wrestling coach, I love the guy, but I, I underperformed. Uh, he recruited me. I didn't do as well as I should. You know, we won state, but not because of me. We'll put it that way. Right. Um, so I thought, okay, well, I, I guess I'll take this one on. So being the junior colleague, I got a, uh, a 2 p.m. start. <laughs> for this massive case. I remember my resident, wonderful guy, I'll be seeing him in Idaho in, uh, in June. He's president of the Rocky Mountain Neurosurgical now, and he's invited me as the honored guest, so I'm lovely to see him again. But he joined me on that case. We started at two o'clock, probably cut skin about three o'clock, finished about 1 a.m. Mm. And it was a formidable, very, very firm, vascular, midline meningioma, including the sinuses, all sorts of veins everywhere. And, uh, got most of it out, cranioplasty, et cetera. I had to do a craniotomy within a craniotomy. Hmm. Anyway, about 1 a.m., he wakes up triplegic, moving the right arm, and that's all. And I just remember the feeling of that moment. Yeah. You just some of these things you'll just never forget. And I went out and I talked to his family, huge family, wonderful people. Told them how he's doing, what we got done. And you, you just never forget that moment. Yeah, I, I wonder. When you, he wakes up, you examine him, you see what he's doing. Before you go talk to the, do you walk straight out and just say, here's how it is? Did you take a moment? How do you get ready for that conversation? Uh, not easy. Yeah. So, it took a while for him to recover. He recovered to the point where he still had weakness in his, I believe it was his left leg. Still had to wear an AFO. Uh, was not the athlete that he was before, but he, he got his arm back. Uh, and, you know, was able to ambulate in an AFO. But the, the, the shock of the moment is the thing that you'll never forget. And it's important to remember that temporary deficits are something that in neurosurgery, when you do big cases, you just have to be ready for them. Yeah. And you have to get the patient and family ready for them. Yeah. 
and that was an important lesson. There's also other lessons I learned that night would uh, don't start big cases at night. Right. Just don't. I was going to say that that's ideal conditions yeah. for a tumor I don't, like that. I don't think that his outcome had anything to do with that, but I do think that that's a lesson I've learned in, in my career. Just don't start big cases at night. Yeah, you're the junior colleague. It could wait a week. Mm. Get the case in next week. I also learned that you have to you have to accept the fact that when you do big cases, sometimes you're going to have outcomes like this, and you have to prepare yourself for that. Uh, I was, I guess, unprepared for that outcome, and particularly because of the personal connection. Uh, you know, I, I probably spent the rest of the night, I remember well, just wandering the hallways. Yeah. Had to operate the next day. Clear my mind, go to the OR, and start again. Right. You know, without sleep, without really clearing my mind. It's also important to know that when you have an outcome like that, you have to, it's, it's easy to step aside and say, I don't want to look at the bad outcome. Mm. And I had an attending who was a phenomenal surgeon, but he would do that. He would take on the biggest cases. He had a way, if things went poorly, of just disappearing yeah. and not rounding on the patient because he didn't want to face it. And then I had another attending who wasn't quite as good a surgeon didn't take on the bigger cases, but when he had a complication, he was all over the patient and the family. Mm. Well, one of them was a superbly talented surgeon, the first one, but he wound up in court all the time. The one who wasn't quite as talented was never sued. It's an important lesson. If something goes wrong, you have to just jump on the circumstance, maximize the outcome. Make sure the patient and the family know that you're there for them. You really have to just, it's uncomfortable, but you just have to jump on it. So when I have complications, or expected or unexpected, first thing I do is I go in the room and I write my name and my cell phone number yes, across from the bed because I want them to know they can always contact me. And that's an important lesson. And I think I did that right with this patient. And we maximized his outcome. And he eventually got back to just walking with an AFO. So that was an important lesson. I would also say that another important lesson, maybe the most important lesson, is that you have to get over the idea that all of your outcomes are gonna be great. Yeah. That's a lesson I learned from Tom Origitano, who I, I didn't know Tom very well at the time. Tom was a very busy skull-based vascular neurosurgeon, chairman at Loyola for 15 years. Really a you know, formidable guy, um, took on really tough cases. MD, PhD, black belt in karate, you know, just a kind of a tough guy. Right. Uh, but Tom made the point to me somewhere shortly thereafter, he said, you know, you have to, 
you have to get past that that sort of feeling because failure to accept bad outcomes is a sign really of arrogance you have to get over yourself you have to say yeah sometimes things aren't going to work out right and you just have to accept that and you have to make yourself self-correcting you have to improve everything you can for your next patient and do all you can to, to maximize the outcome for the patient you just operated on but you do have to at some point forgive yourself for any outcome that was suboptimal uh, and that case was to this day I mean thousands of tumors later uh, was a top 10 tough case that I've done and but you have to you have to just say it's okay you did what you could you did your best in the circumstance and you just have to move on and keep on taking care of patients if you don't you're going to wind up like that very talented surgeon that I told you about who was one of the people who trained me phenomenal surgeon retired at 54 hmm. walked away just could not deal with the morbidity anymore. Yeah. You have to find a way in yourself to just accept the fact that you're going to have suboptimal outcomes sometimes. Do all you can to avoid them, maximize recovery for the patient, improve for the future, and then forgive yourself. Yeah. And you just have to just keep on for the next patient. Otherwise, you're gonna burn yourself out. Uh, there was a, uh, you know, looking out the window, there's UIC right out the window. Former chairman of UIC, Bob Kroll, famous vascular surgeon. You might not have heard of him because of your generation, but people in my generation knew who Bob Kroll was. He came from Harvard, was the head of vascular surgery there, came to UIC and then went back to Harvard, practiced there for many years, and then eventually left and went into private practice in the Berkshire Mountains, hmm. doing lumbar discs and shunts and so on. And he hired a good friend of mine who trained at Loyola. And he said, so, you know, when he was interviewing, he said, Dr. Kroll, why, why would you leave Harvard and come out to the mountains? And, and Dr. Kroll told him, I just got tired of feeling like I'm taking final exams every day. Hmm. There is a certain burnout, career burnout, yeah. that you can go through. And you'll see some people will, will disappear from that, the, the complex cases that way. Some people will avoid them entirely. But if you're going to be in that realm, taking on the, the most complex cases, the steps that I mentioned earlier, the final step, you know, forgiving yourself for a suboptimal outcome and accepting that it is part of our field and then pushing forward to make sure that the next generation, the outcomes are better. Um, and that's why I stick around and train you guys. Sure. So that your outcomes, when you're taking care of patients, are gonna be that much better. Yeah. There's one thing that I, I do wanna to touch on before we wrap. Just in hearing you talk about temporary deficits or even um, permanent deficits that may be intrinsic to a surgery, may be unexpected, um, unavoidable, but 
there has to be some point in your mind when you decide to take a tumor to surgery. Because I see you follow patients in clinic and wait and wait, and then when, when they come in for surgery and I meet them, I see that you've been following them for years. So some point in time, you decide what this tumor is doing or what this tumor will inevitably do is worse than what would likely happen if I do the surgery now. And so I wonder how either internally with yourself you make that call or even maybe more interestingly when you talk to a patient, talk to a family and say, this is what, you, you know, you prognosticate. You say, this is what will happen if we don't act now. Then you do the surgery, you have some temporary deficit or you have a bad outcome. And then all they ever see is what did happen. And it's hard to emotionally weigh that against what you said would happen if we didn't act. So how, how do you reach that point where I guess every surgeon is, is different because it's your practice, it's your hands. But where do you find that point where you say, I know what will happen if I don't act. I know what could happen if I do act. This is the time to do it. Well, I, I do think that there's, uh, there's a certain heuristic algorithm that you have in your own mind that you fine tune over, over years. You are your own artificial intelligence. I mean, you're, right. you're, you're just sort of fine tuning what you think you can get done safely and what you can't. Right. And what's worth taking risks for and what isn't. Remember when you're dealing with benign disease, you want to make sure that your surgery is more benign than the disease. So I tend to follow benign disease longitudinally unless it's presenting in a malignant fashion, really hurting somebody. Or if you see that over time, you're seeing that it's growing and likely to cause more trouble. Um, so I, I do think that there's, there's that experience that you get of what you think you can get done. When is the risk of the natural history higher than the risk of your intervention? And then you have to explain to the patient the, the acceptance of temporary deficit versus the concern of permanent deficit, partial or complete. And that's a discussion you have to have with the patient and the family. Sometimes you have to have that discussion multiple times for them yeah. to really understand it. Uh, because in the end, it's their risk far more than it's your risk. Yeah. Uh, so you, you have to you have to educate the patient along the way and then the patient has to think it through themselves and I'll often encourage people go get more opinions you know go go get you know if I think the risk-benefit ratio is off go get more opinions but I'll steer them towards people who know what they're talking about yeah other very experienced people in our in our field so that it can be weighed out properly so that they just don't wind up with somebody who's just you know not very busy and will take a swing at it. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of that that proper waiting and thinking it through and following and and there's plenty of people by the way that I, I've been seeing in clinic for 20 years that I've still not operated on. Hmm. And we just get scans at lengthening intervals and and they're okay. And this the, the patient that I'm, I I started off telling you about I, I still see I saw him months ago. Uh, his tumor is absolutely perfectly stable from when I operated on it. Yeah. We did one dose of radiation after surgery, never changed. 
So longitudinal follow-up for benign disease is often benign. So treat it that way. That way. Yeah. You have to make sure that, you have to prove the disease is going to be worse than your intervention. Yeah. But there are the unknowables, the improbables, the post-op infection, the injury to some important draining vein that leads to seizures that you can't fully anticipate. The PE. Yeah. All of these these things that you it's hard to put that into a calculator and come out with an answer. And it's hard for patients to understand that we don't have that crystal ball that they have on Grey's Anatomy and all these other silly shows mm -hmm. that are refused to watch because they're just not real. Um, you know, we, we, aren't, we aren't granted that crystal ball upon graduation from medical school. We don't right. know any, any more than they do. Our, our, our heuristic algorithm is pretty fine-tuned after you know a few decades of practice, but we don't know the future. So some of it is just accepting your own humanity and your own limitations. And that, that can help you to you know, have, a, have a longer career, to not burn out because of morbidity, to, to just, just accept your own limitations and the limitations of our field as they are. Beautiful. Well, Dr. Byrne, I want to respect your time. Um, really honored to have you back on the show, and we're very grateful for you sharing that story. Glad to be here. Wow, that was another very fascinating case, JP. Sounds like uh, Dr. Byrne uh, just dodged a bullet with that one. I mean, it's it's such an interesting life that we lead that we have these sort of interactions on a regular basis. And, you know, I know what an amazing surgeon Rich is. Um, and, you know, for him to describe it in that manner means that it must have been quite harrowing. Yeah, you know, I, I'm really grateful that Dr. Byrne came back on the show and shared that with us. I I remember when I first emailed him asking uh, for him to do this, he immediately wrote back and he said, oh, my God, there are so many stories. I don't even know which one to pick. And he was he was so enthusiastic to talk about it. And I, I'm glad that he chose one from this early period in his career and that he really he settled on that one because working with him and, and training under him, there was a lot evident in that story and some of the lessons that he took from it that he shared with with everyone listening that I hear from him every day in the operating room. And I it, it's interesting to see the, the seeds of those lessons he gives us in the day to day work that we do uh, and, and where they came from in that early point of his career. Yeah, you know. I've known Rich for about a decade now, and he's an amazing athlete. He is one of those guys that you you know you look at his just his physical structure, and he's not a very large person, but he's incredibly uh, sinewy. Like he has no fat on his body. He runs marathons. I mean, in the middle of meetings, he'll just go for like fourteen mile runs, like at the WNS. And I wonder if you know his commentary about this being later in the day. I wonder if that is part of what drives him that he. He never wants to be caught tired or flat-footed. Right. And and that was, it is something that he often tells us. And that was kind of the, the first major point and lesson he brought up from this story was that you don't start a surgery that big at, at two or three in the afternoon. And it's something that we always talk about at work now when we're, when we're scheduling things that come in unplanned. But you're, you're right. I think that kind of in the 
conventional idea of the neurosurgeon, there is that aspect to to us where we all want to seem indefatigable. We all want, we all want to seem like we're the Navy SEAL that can stay swimming for hours and hours and treading water. And in many ways, and in probably in most situations, that's a good thing because it keeps us going. It keeps us working when you're on call alone and the patients just keep coming in. But like everything in life, there has to be another side to that coin. And there can be times where that refusal to admit that even if you don't feel tired, maybe you should sit down and rest yourself and recharge so you can come back and do your job properly. There has to come a point where we acknowledge that we have to take care of ourselves so we can take care of other people, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I see a recurring theme. You know, there there have def- definitely been some of these interviews that we've been doing now that are showing that part of the problem, at least is from the mind of the surgeon, is a, a, a sense of a loss of complete control over their environment. Uh, we've heard that now a couple times in the past uh, two months, right? Which is that, you know, it's late in the day or the team wasn't ready or um, there was something a little bit off about the scenario, not this, not about the surgeon necessarily himself or herself, but about mm. that scenario. And I, I think that it really brings to bear the idea that we need to be especially prepared, this this extra preparedness that you don't just kind of show up for a case, that you're, you're always preparing for that case, whether it's because you're preparing yourself physically or mentally or spiritually or socially. Um, I, I mean, you, you, you're going through that now, right? Residency is, is, is a whole process of that. You're, you're completely right. Um, it, it is seven years of preparation for stepping out there and having to answer for my own decisions and, uh, you know, face the patient in front of me and try to figure out what can be done for them, what should be done, and then do it. Um, and as we always say, it's a seven-year program for a reason because that's an almost inhuman level of responsibility, but someone has to shoulder it. Um, it it's interesting that you touch on the point of preparation because I, I think the other interesting part of this conversation with Dr. Byrne that I really enjoyed getting into was when he talked about preparing the patient and their family and setting their expectations. Um, it, it's something that we always talk about with like the, these large tumors, large skull-based procedures, where m- maybe more so than other procedures that we offer, there's, there's a high level of intrinsic risk, not only to the health, the, the life of the patient, but certain key functions uh, that, you know, if the surgery goes south, maybe the person doesn't die, but they lose control of half of their body. They lose some facial function, some uh, perhaps personality defining function of the brain that could be harmed inherent to the procedure or could be harmed if an accident occurs. And I really enjoyed hearing Dr. Byrne talk about how extensively and thoroughly he discusses these risks during the consent process with his, with his patients. I wonder what it's like in your practice, Dr. Wayne, because I know you do a whole spectrum of, of different spinal surgeries from very, very small minimally invasive procedures to larger deformity corrections. What Are there any parallels between the consent process for a brain tumor surgery and your approach to talking to patients before spine surgery? Yeah, I, I mean, big differences, I think, between brain and spine, right? Because sp- and I'm speaking, of course, in generalities now, but, you know, I always tell the brain surgeons that their consent process is so easy. People feel like they're going to die from a brain problem. And in the spine, if anything goes wrong, then it's always our fault. Right. And so, you know, there's a reason, right. There's a reason why we get sued more and, and we're hated more. And, and I I think the life of a spine surgeon is actually in some ways 
it's it's in some ways it's a lot harder because of that. It's it's easier because you know we don't get as many of the emergencies in the middle of the night and all that. But I think on the back end, the the emotional toll is just as hard because of that. Um, mm-hmm. But do people really even understand what we're saying to them? Right? Um, do when when you say, look, this could happen to you, like are we quantifying that risk for them? I think it's very hard for people to, to really know. And, and you really get the sense when people come see you in the clinic that most of them, and I know that there are people that are like the New York types that want to see six doctors, but they've kind of already made up in their mind, like, am I going to have a surgery? Like it, it's, it's, it's rare to me to see patients who are like coming in who are saying like, well, I really don't know what to do. So I need you to really convince me. And maybe it's because my population is a little more sophisticated. I feel like people, like if you tell them something, they're going to do the surgery. If you tell them another thing, you know, they might just go see somebody else. Um, You know, people, nobody wants a surgery, right? But are they really informed in the way they're making their decisions? I don't feel like it's like when they're going to buy a house. Right. And and so how frequently... Do you, because another thing Dr. Byrne was talking about was depending on the pathology, if it's benign disease like a meningioma, he'll follow these people for years and maybe never offer them a surgery or maybe eventually he will if despite being benign disease by its location or by its growth pattern, it is starting to affect them and, and threaten them. And we talked about where he intuitively or with his heuristics, where he finds that balance of risk and benefit where He's introducing a physical risk by doing the surgery, but you don't want to wait too long where it becomes even more risky if the tumor gets so big. Um, So I I wonder on the spine side of things, clearly the patients who make it to your clinic have been screened through however many layers of primary care doctors, physical therapists, etc. Some of them come to you with weakness or numbness, but some come just with pain. So I imagine you also have some heuristic for a patient that comes with pain who you follow for some time and eventually decide, okay, they, they've failed non-operative treatments. Now I think it's worth the risk to offer a surgery. Uh, what is your heuristic like in a patient like that? Yeah, you know, that's a good question, JP, but let me back up. I think I might have misspoke in context, which is, you know, I work in a metropolitan space in Miami where the, the population is fairly... They're, elderly and they're they're really pretty sophisticated and like you said they've gone through many 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 layers of people to get to me so i'm sure that in community practice there are people who are getting a diagnosis maybe for the first time who are, who are not sure what to make of anything right so I, I guess by the time people come see me at university of miami it's been four months of whatever and and they're they've already done research and they've heard a lot about this problem so i, I shouldn't misspeak I, I know there are a lot of community guys out there that probably do have to do that explanation Uh, As far as spine goes, you know, for me, it's very straightforward in the sense that I will not operate on anybody unless they answer the question in the affirmative, which is, I cannot live with this situation the way I am now. And and Mm -hmm. by that, I mean surgery for pain, not for myelopathy, not for tumors, not for trauma, um, but for pain. And so reticulopathy, axial pain, uh, those types of syndromes, um, they have to say that. And, 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 Maybe I'm being too conservative that way, but I, I very much worry about the optics on it. You know, when, when people say, well, you know, you're being too careless doing surgery on people. And I, I do a lot of surgery. So I worry about that. So I always, that's the first thing I ask a patient when I walk in the room, I say, can you live with this? And if they say, yeah, I'm like, okay, well, you need to go home and, you know, you don't need to be here right now, uh, maybe in the future, right? How, how do you guys do it at Rush? Very similar to that. Um, so, you know, I, I see 
like anything in life, there are exceptions to these things here and there. But but again, specifically for pain, we are very conservative in offering people surgery. And we, we make sure that they go through all the proper channels and fail all the other non-surgical treatments first. Um, you know, we're kind of going in a direction I didn't expect with this, but something you just said made me think about a, a, a question that at least among the residents, we always bat around. And I don't think that there's a right answer. I, I always ask you questions that don't have a right answer, but I'm just curious what your take is, because let's say you have someone that comes to you. Um, they have horrible, ridiculous pain. They've done some physical therapy. They've done NSAIDs. They've had injections and they, they don't satisfy your criterion. You know, can you live with this pain? Yeah, I can, but it's just really annoying. I'm sick of taking all these medications. And I just want it to go away. But, you know, I, and, and you don't feel like they appreciate the gravity of this surgery. You don't think that they need the surgery yet, but you know that they're going to keep asking other surgeons. They're going to find someone who will do it. So you, you, you might be able to anticipate the question I'm going to ask, which is if you know the person's going to find a surgeon that will say yes, can you convince yourself, well, maybe if it's going to happen anyway, it'll be safer to happen in my hands. And so that's, that's like a, it's a hypothetical question. It's a moral dilemma. So I'm just curious what, what your thought is about that question, Dr. Wang. And do you, do you think there are surgeons who can talk themselves into doing a surgery they might not think is indicated because they think, well, you know, better in my hands, better at my hospital where I can ensure that it will be done safely? Oh, yeah. I've actually heard that exact quote. Uh, from senior surgeons uh, when I was in Los Angeles. But I, you know, I wonder as we're having this conversation, it's quite interesting. We've gone very far from Richard Burns' case, but right. I feel like we almost need to do uh, a discussion on the geographical differences in America or maybe the world. Because mm. as we're having this conversation, it occurs to me that I practice in Florida, which has a very, very wide breadth of indications. And we're well known for having surgeons locally that operate on car accident victims that don't need surgery and stuff like that, right? Uh, stuff that you don't really see in certain other parts of the country, maybe not in Chicago. And you see a lot of um, poorly trained individuals and the community doesn't band together. Like I was in Wisconsin and it's like, if anybody's behaving badly, my understanding is that they get run out of town. And that certainly doesn't happen here. And we should, we should have another episode on that topic as well. But Absolutely not. I, I, I think that's a slippery slope. Um, I, th I think that if a patient really wants to have surgery and they haven't answered that question, I'm like, maybe you're not understanding what I'm asking you. Um, but I tell them to go home and sleep on it. I say, listen, go home and sleep on it. You can always come back tomorrow. Just don't, don't rush into anything. And, you know, people will come back five, six times and, and they'll convince me, yeah, you know, I'm suffering a lot. I just, I don't want to tell you that I'm a wimp. I want, I want you to fix this for me and, and I'll do it. But but it's only after multiple visits. Right. I mean, like so many things in life, if you don't have the surgery, you still can. But once you have it, you can't take it back. That is exactly right. Well, I want to thank Rich for sharing that very heartfelt story. This has been a fantastic journey along this, uh, this mini-series, JP. And thanks again for coming up with it. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. 
Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.